Well, hello everybody and welcome back to our series on the Formula of Concord. Now, last week we read through the entirety of the epitome or the concise summary of everything the theologians of Concord or the theologians of the Augsburg Confession got together and talked about the things that they hashed out using the word of God as their, well, basically their only guide. You know, some helpful suggestions from Luther and the church fathers. But they came up with these conclusions on these contested theological issues, as well as distinguishing the Lutheran denomination from, well, everybody else. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Calvinism, and the Baptist denomination especially. So now... After the epitome, though, we get into what's called the solid declaration, where they take a step back and go, okay, we've given you the epitome. Now let's go in detail on why we're saying the things that we said. The epitome, it's about 150 pages long. It is a big, big theological document, especially for something that goes into detail in some really heavy doctrines. So we're going to read through it over the course of a few weeks here. We're going to read it somewhat slowly, and we're going to go through it with the eye of what is the justification, what is the evidence that they present for what we're saying as confessional Lutherans. So with that said, let's go ahead and get into the Formula of Concord, Part 2, The Solid Declaration. A general, pure, correct and definitive restatement and exposition of a number of articles of the Augsburg Confession concerning which there has been a controversy among some theologians for a time, resolved and settled according to the word of God and the summary formulation of our Christian doctrine. By the special grace and mercy of the Almighty, the teaching concerning the chief articles of our Christian faith— which had been hideously obscured by human doctrines and ordinances under the papacy, was once more clearly set forth on the basis of the word of God and purified by Dr. Luther, of blessed and holy memory, and the popish errors, abuses, and idolatry were condemned. The opponents, however, regarded this pious reformation as a new doctrine and as wholly contrary to the word of God and Christian institutions, attacked it violently, although unwarrantedly, and raised no end of slanders and insinuations against it. At that time, a number of Christian electors, princes, and estates who had then accepted the pure doctrine of the Holy Gospel and had allowed their churches to be reformed according to the word of God, ordered the preparation of a Christian confession on the basis of God's word, and submitted it to Emperor Charles V at the Great Diet of Augsburg, and submitted it um, in 1530. In this document, they gave a clear and unequivocal Christian witness, setting forth the faith and the teaching of the evangelical Christian churches concerning the chief articles, especially those which were in controversy between them and the Pope's adherents. The adversaries took a jaundiced view of this confession, but thank God it has remained unrefuted and unimpregnable until this day. Herewith, we again wholeheartedly subscribe this Christian and thoroughly scriptural Augsburg Confession, and we abide by the plain, clear, and pure meanings of its words. 
We consider this confession a genuinely Christian symbol which all true Christians ought to accept next to the word of God. Just as in ancient times Christian symbols and confessions were formulated in the church of God when great controversies broke out, and orthodox teachers and hearers pledged themselves to these symbols with heart and mouth. Similarly, we are determined by the grace of the Almighty to abide until our end by this repeatedly cited Christian confession as it was delivered to Emperor Charles in 1530. And we do not intend either in this or in subsequent doctrinal statements to depart from the aforementioned confession or to set up a different and new confession. Although the Christian doctrine set forth in this confession has remained practically unchallenged, except for the charges of the Papists, it can nevertheless not be denied that some theologians did depart from it in several important and significant articles, either because they failed to grasp their true meaning or because they did not abide by them. Some, while boasting of and benefiting from their adherence to the Augsburg Confession, even dared to give a false interpretation to these articles. This caused serious and dangerous schisms in the true evangelical churches, just as during the very lifetime of the holy apostles, frightful errors arose among those who pretended to be Christians and gloried in the doctrine of Christ. Some wanted to become righteous and to be saved by the works of the law, Acts 15, verses 1 through 5, verse 10, and verse 24. Some denied the resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, and others even denied that Christ was eternal and true God. Um, the authors having in mind here Jude um, 4 and 8, those verses, 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 10, Colossians 1 and 2, and 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. The holy apostles were compelled vigorously to denounce all of these in their sermons and in their writings, though they knew that these titanic errors and their subsequent bitter controversies would involve serious offense for both the unbelievers and the weak believers. Similarly, at the present time, our adversaries, the papists, rejoice over the schisms which have occurred among us in the unchristian but futile hope that these disagreements will ultimately lead to the ruin of the pure doctrine. The weak in faith, on the other hand, will be scandalized. Some will doubt if the pure doctrine can coexist among us with such divisions, while others will not know which of the contending parties they should support. After all, these controversies are not, as some may think, mere misunderstandings or contentions about words, with one party talking past the other, so that the strife reflects a mere semantic problem of little or no consequence. On the contrary, these controversies deal with weighty and important matters, and they are of such a nature that the opinions of the erring party cannot be tolerated in the church of God, much less be excused and defended. For that reason, necessity requires that such controverted articles be explained on the basis of God's word and of approved writings in such a way that anybody with Christian intelligence can see which opinion in the controverted issues agrees with the word of God and the Christian Augsburg Confession, and so that well-meaning Christians who are really concerned about the truth may know how to guard and protect themselves against the errors and corruptions that have invaded our midst. The summary, formulation, basis, rule, and norm, indicating how all doctrines should be judged in conformity with the word of God and errors are to be explained and decided in a Christian way. 
The primary requirement for basic and permanent concord within the church is a summary formula in pattern, unanimously approved, in which the summarized doctrine commonly confessed by the churches of the pure Christian religion is drawn together out of the word of God. For this same purpose, the ancient church always had its dependable symbols. It based these not on mere private writings, but on such books as had been written, approved, and accepted in the name of those churches which confessed the same doctrine and religion. In the same way, we have from our hearts and with our mouths declared in mutual agreement that we shall neither prepare nor accept a different or a new confession of our faith. Rather, we pledge ourselves again to those public and well-known symbols or common confessions which have at all times and in all places been accepted in all of the churches of the Augsburg Confession, before the outbreak of the several controversies among the adherents of the Augsburg Confession, in which were kept and used during that period when people were everywhere and unanimously faithful to the pure doctrine of the Word of God, as Dr. Luther of blessed memory had explained it. 1. We pledge ourselves to the prophetic and apostolic writings of the Old and New Testaments as the pure and clear fountain of Israel, which is the only true norm according to which all teachers and teachings are to be judged and evaluated. 2. Since in ancient times the true Christian doctrine as it was correctly and soundly understood was drawn together out of God's word in brief articles or chapters against the aberrations of heretics, we further pledge allegiance to the three general creeds, the Apostles, the Nicene, and the Athanasian, as the glorious confessions of the faith, succinct, Christian, and based upon the word of God, in which all those heresies which at that time had arisen within the Christian church are clearly and solidly refuted. 3. By a special grace, our merciful God has in these last days brought to light the truth of his word amid the abominable darkness of the papacy through the for the faithful ministry of that illustrious man of God, Dr. Luther. This doctrine, drawn from and conformed to the word of God, is summarized in the articles and chapters of the Augsburg Confession against the aberrations of the papacy and of other sects. We therefore declare our adherence to the first, unaltered Augsburg Confession, in the form in which it was set down in writing in the year 1530 and submitted to Emperor Charles V at Augsburg by a number of Christian electors, princes, and estates of the Roman Empire as the common confession of the Reformed Churches, as our symbol in this epoch, not because this confession was prepared by our theologians, but because it was taken from the Word of God and solidly and well-grounded therein. This symbol distinguishes our Reformed churches from the papacy and from other condemned sects and heresies. We appeal to it just as in the ancient church it was traditional and customary for later synods and Christian bishops and teachers to appeal and confess adherence to the Nicene Creed. 4. After the repeatedly cited Augsburg Confession had been submitted, an extensive apology was prepared and published in 1531, to set forth clearly the true and genuine meaning of the Augsburg Confession, with a view both to presenting the doctrines against the papacy more clearly and effectively, and to forestalling the possibility that under the name of the Augsburg Confession, someone might surreptitiously undertake to insinuate into the church errors that had already been rejected. 
We therefore unanimously pledge our adherence to this apology also, because in it the cited Augsburg Confession is clearly expounded and defended against errors, and also because it is supported with clear and irrefutable testimonies from the Holy Scriptures. 5. In the fifth place, we also commit ourselves to the articles which we prepared in the Great Assembly of Theologians at Schmalkald in 1537, and there approved and accepted. We follow the version as it was initially prepared and published for presentation, in the name of the illustrious and most illustrious electors, princes, and estates before the council in Mantua, or wherever it would ultimately be held, that is, Trent, as an explication of the Augsburg Confession, to which the electors, princes, and estates were resolved by God's grace to remain faithful. In these articles, the doctrine of the cited Augsburg Confession is repeated. Several articles are further explained on the basis of God's word, and in addition, the grounds and reasons are set forth at necessary length for renouncing the papistic errors and idolatries, for having no communion with the papists, and for neither expecting nor planning to come to an understanding with the Pope about these matters. 6. Since these important matters also concern ordinary people and laymen who for their eternal salvation must as Christians know the difference between true and false doctrine, we declare our unanimous adherence to Dr. Luther's small and large catechisms, as he prepared them and incorporated them in his published works, since they have been unanimously sanctioned and accepted and are used publicly in the churches, the schools, and the homes of those churches which adhere to the Augsburg Confession, and since they formulate Christian doctrine on the basis of God's word for ordinary laymen in a most correct and simple, yet sufficiently explicit form. The pure churches and schools have everywhere recognized these publicly and generally accepted documents as the sum and pattern of the doctrine which Dr. Luther of blessed memory clearly set forth in his writings on the basis of God's word and conclusively established against the papacy and other sects. We also wish to be regarded as appealing to further extensive statements in his doctrinal and polemical writings, but in the necessary and Christian terms and manner in which he himself refers to them in the preface to the Latin edition of his selected works. Here he expressly asserts by way of distinction that the word of God is and should remain the sole rule and norm of all doctrine so that no human being's writings dare be put on a par with it, but that everything must be subjected to it. This, of course, does not mean that other good, useful, and pure books, such as interpretations of the Holy Scriptures, refutations of errors, and expositions of doctrinal articles, should be rejected. If they are in accord with the aforementioned pattern of doctrine, they are to be accepted and used as helpful expositions and explanations. Our intention was only to have a single, universally accepted, certain, and common form of doctrine which all our evangelical churches subscribe, and from which and according to which, because it is drawn from the word of God, all other writings are to be approved and accepted, judged and regulated. The reason why we have embodied the writings above listed, the Augsburg Confession, the Apology, the Small Called Articles, and Luther's Large and Small Catechisms, in the cited summary of our Christian doctrine, is that they have always and everywhere been accepted as the common and universally accepted belief of our churches, that the chief and most illustrious theologians of that time subscribed them, and that all evangelical churches and schools received them. 
We have included these confessions also because all were prepared and published before the dissensions arose among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession. They are therefore regarded as impartial. None of the parties in the various controversies can or should reject them, nor can anyone who sincerely adheres to the Augsburg Confession object to these documents, but will gladly admit and accept them as witnesses to the truth. No one can blame us if we derive our expositions and decisions in the controverted articles from these writings, for just as we base our position on the word of God as the eternal truth, so we introduce and cite these writings as a witness to the truth and as exhibiting the unanimous and correct understanding of our predecessors, who remained steadfastly in the pure doctrine. Antitheses in the Controverted Articles in order to preserve the pure doctrine and to maintain a thorough, lasting, and God-pleasing concord within the church, it is essential not only to present the true and wholesome doctrine correctly, but also to accuse the adversaries who teach otherwise. 1 Timothy 3 verse 9, Titus 1 verse 9, 2 Timothy 2 24, and 2 Timothy 3 16. Faithful shepherds, as Luther states, must both pasture or feed the lambs and guard against wolves, so that they will flee from strange voices and separate the precious from the vile. And that's according with John 10, 12 through 16 in verse 27 and Jeremiah 15, verse 19. On this point, we have reached a basic and mutual agreement that we shall at all times make a sharp distinction between needless and unprofitable contentions, which, since they destroy rather than edify, should never be allowed to disturb the church, and necessary controversy, dissension concerning the articles of the creed or the chief parts of our Christian doctrine, when the contrary error must be refuted in order to preserve the truth. It is true that the Christian reader who really delights in the truth of God's word will find in the previously mentioned writings that he should accept as correct and true in each of the controverted articles of our Christian faith, according to the prophetic and apostolic writings of God's word and what he should reject, flee, and avoid as false and wrong. Nevertheless, to ensure that the truth may be established the most distinctly and clearly, and may be distinguished from all error, and likewise to ensure that familiar terminology may not hide and conceal something, we have collectively and severally come to a clear and express mutual agreement concerning the chief and most significant articles which were in controversy at this time. This agreement we have set forth as a certain and public testimony, not only to our contemporaries but also to our posterity, of that which our churches believe and accept with one accord as the correct and abiding answer in the controverted issues. To wit, 1. In the first place, we reject and condemn all heresies and errors which the primitive, ancient, orthodox church rejected, and condemned on the certain and solid basis of the holy and divine scriptures. 2. In the second place, we reject and condemn all the sects and heresies that are rejected in the aforementioned documents. 3. In the third place, since within the past 25 years a number of divisions have occurred among some of the theologians of the Augsburg Confession, on account of the interim and for other reasons, we wanted to set forth and explain our, our faith and confession unequivocally, clearly and distinctly, in theses and antitheses, opposing the true doc doctrine to the false doctrine, so that the foundation of divine truth might be made apparent in every article 
and that every incorrect, dubious, suspicious, and condemned doctrine might be exposed, no matter where or in what books it might be found, or who may have said it or supported it. We did this so that we might thereby faithfully forewarn everyone against the errors contained here and there in the writings of certain theologians, lest anyone be misled by the high regard in which these theologians were held. This explanation will enable the pious reader, as far as is necessary, to compare our present position with the aforementioned doctrinal writings. Such a comparison will show him clearly that there is no contradiction between what we taught and confessed originally and afterward expounded as occasion demanded in what we now repeat in this document, but that it is the same simple, unchanging, constant truth. We do not, as our adversaries charge, veer from one doctrine to another. On the contrary, we want to be found faithful to the commonly accepted Christian meaning of the Augsburg Confession as it was originally submitted. By God's grace, we shall continue to abide in it loyally and faithfully against all the aberrations that have arisen. 1. Original Sin In the first place, there has been dissension among a number of theologians of the Augsburg Confession about what original sin, strictly understood, is. One side contended that man's nature and essence are wholly corrupt as a result of the fall of Adam. So that ever since the fall, the nature, substance, and essence of fallen man, at least the foremost and noblest part of his essence, namely that his rational soul in its highest degrees and foremost powers, is original sin itself, which has been called nature sin or person sin because it is not a thought, word, or a deed, but the very nature itself out of which, as the root and source, all other sins proceed. For this reason, there is now, after the fall, allegedly no difference whatsoever between man's nature, or essence, and original sin. The other party, however, took a contrary view and taught that original sin, strictly speaking, is not man's nature, substance, or essence, that is, man's body or soul, which even after the fall are and remain God's handiwork and creation in us. They maintain that original sin is something in man's nature, in his body, soul, and all his powers, and that it is an abominable, deep, and inexpressible corruption thereof, in the sense that man lacks the righteousness in which he was originally created, that in spiritual matters he is dead to that which is good and is turned to everything evil, and that because of this corruption and this inborn sin which inheres in his nature, all actual sins flow out of his heart. Hence, they say we must preserve the distinction between the nature and essence of fallen man, that is, between his body and soul, which are God's handiwork, and creatures in us even after the fall, an original sin, which is a work of the devil by which man's nature has become corrupted. This controversy concerning original sin is not a useless contention about words. On the contrary, when it is presented clearly from and according to the word of God, and is purged of all Pelagian and Manichean errors, then, as the Apology declares, we are led to understand better and to magnify more fully Christ's benefits, his precious merits, and the Holy Spirit's gracious activity. Furthermore, we are extolling God's honor properly when we carefully distinguish his work and creation in man from the devil's work the corruption of his human nature. Hence, in order to explain this controversy in a Christian fashion and according to the word of God, and to preserve the true and correct doctrine concerning original sin, 
we shall use the aforementioned writings to set forth in short chapters the true doctrine and its opposite in theses and antitheses. In the first place, it is established truth that Christians must regard and recognize as sin not only the actual transgressions of God's commandments, but also, and primarily, the abominable and dreadful inherited disease which has corrupted our entire nature. In fact, we must consider this as the chief sin, the root and fountain of all actual sin. Uh, the term actual, by the way, in the, in the Latin use of the word, it's uh, acted sin in contrast to inherited or inherent sin. Dr. Luther calls this sin nature sin or person sin in order to indicate that even though a man were to think no evil, speak no evil, or do no evil, which after the fall of our first parents is of course impossible for human nature in this life, nevertheless man's nature in person would still be sinful. This means that in the sight of God, original sin, like a spiritual leprosy, has thoroughly and entirely poisoned and corrupted human nature. On account of this corruption, and because of the fall of the first man, our nature, or person, is under the accusation and condemnation of the law of God, so that we are by nature children of wrath, as Ephesians 2 verse 3 says. Uh, and death, and of damnation, uh, unless we are redeemed from this state through Christ's merit. In the second place, it is also a clearly established truth, as Article 19 of the Augsburg Confession teaches, that God is not the creator, author, or cause of sin. Through Satan's scheme, by one man, which is the work of the devil, entered into the world, uh, Romans 5 verse 12 and 1 John 3 verse 8. And even today, in this corruption, God does not create and make sin in us. Rather, along with the nature which God still creates and makes at the present time, original sin is transmitted through our carnal conception and birth out of sinful seed from our father and mother. So, Lutherans are not traducians in the, other, in the sense. Thirdly, reason does not know and understand the true nature of this inherited damage. As the Schmalkald articles point out, it is something that has to be learned and believed from the revelation of the scriptures. The apology summarizes the matter under these heads. 1. That this inherited damage is the reason why all of us, because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, are in God's disfavor and are children of wrath by nature, as St. Paul says in Romans 5 verse 12. Furthermore, 2. That original sin is the complete lack or absence of the original, concreated righteousness of paradise, or of the image of God according to which man was originally created in truth, holiness, and righteousness, together with a disability and ineptitude as far as the things of God are concerned. As the Latin words put it, the description of original sin denies to unrenewed human nature the gifts and the power or the faculty in the concrete act to begin and to affect anything in spiritual matters. 3. That original sin in human nature is not only a total lack of good in spiritual divine things, but that at the same time it replaces the lost image of God in man with a deep, wicked, abominable, bottomless, inscrutable, and inexpressible corruption of his entire nature in all its powers, especially of the highest and foremost powers of the soul in mind, heart, and will.
As a result, since the fall, man inherits an inborn wicked stamp, an interior uncleanness of the heart and evil desires and inclinations. By nature, every one of us inherits from Adam a heart, sensation, and mindset which in its highest powers and the light of reason is by nature diametrically opposed to God and his highest commands, and is actually enmity against God, especially in divine and spiritual matters. True, in natural and external things which are subject to reason, man still possesses a measure of reason, power, and ability. Although greatly weakened since the inherited malady has so poisoned and tainted them that they amount to nothing in the sight of God. 4. The punishment and penalty of original sin which God imposes upon Adam's children and upon original sin is death, eternal damnation, together with other bodily, spiritual, temporal, and eternal misery the tyranny and dominion of the devil so that human nature is subject to the devil's dominion, abandoned to his power and held captive in his servitude. He misleads many influential and wise men of the world with terrible errors and heresies, strikes them with other kinds of blindness, and drives them headlong into all sorts of vice. 5. This inherited damage is so great and terrible that in baptized believers it can be covered up and forgiven before God only for the Lord Christ's sake. Likewise, only the Holy Spirit's regeneration and renovation can heal man's nature, which original sin has perverted and corrupted. Of course, this process is only begun in this life, not to be completed until the life yonder. These points, which we have given in summary form, are explained in greater detail in the aforementioned confessions of our Christian doctrine. It is incumbent upon us to maintain and preserve this doctrine in such a way that we fall neither into Pelagian nor into Manichaean errors. For this reason we shall briefly enumerate the contrary doctrines which are rejected and condemned in our churches. 1. First, in opposition to both old and new Pelagians, we condemn and reject as false the opinion and doctrine that original sin is only an obligation resulting from someone else's action without any corruption of our own nature. Two, again that the sinful wicked desires are not sin, but concreated and essential attributes of man's nature. Three, or that the above-mentioned lack and damage allegedly are not really and truly such a sin in the sight of God that apart from Christ every person on that account is necessarily a child of wrath and of damnation and is in the kingdom under the dominion of Satan. 4. We likewise reject and condemn the following and related Pelagian errors that human nature, even after the fall, is uncorrupt and especially that in spiritual matters it is good, pure, and in its natural powers, perfect. 5. Or that original sin is only a simple, insignificant, external spot or blemish merely splashed on, or a corruption only of certain accidental elements in human nature, in spite of which and beneath which human nature has and retains its goodness and powers also in spiritual matters. 6. Or that original sin is not a deprivation or absence in man's spiritual good powers, but only an external impediment to them, just as garlic juice smeared on a magnet does not destroy the magnet's natural power, but only impedes it, or that the spots spoken of can be easily washed off like a smudge of dirt from one's face or paint from the wall. 7. 
Likewise, we also reject and condemn those who teach that through, though man, through man's fall has been greatly weakened and corrupted through the fall, it has nevertheless not entirely lost all the goodness that belongs to spiritual and divine matters, or that the situation is not the way the hymn which we sing in our churches describes it. Quote, through Adam's fall, man's nature and being are wholly corrupted, end quote. But that human nature has of and from man's natural birth something that is good, even though in only a small, limited, and poor degree, such as the faculty, aptitude, skill, or ability to initiate and effect something in spiritual matters, or to cooperate therein. We shall give our exposition concerning the external, temporal, and civil affairs which are subject to human reason in the next article. We condemn and reject these and similar false doctrines because God's word teaches that man's corrupted nature can of and by itself do no good thing in spiritual divine matters, not even the least thing, such as, for example, producing a good thought. Worse than that, in the sight of God, it can by and of itself do nothing but sin. Genesis 6 verse 5 and 8 verse 21. 1. On the other hand, this doctrine must also be protected against any Manichaean aberrations. For that reason, the following and similar errors are rejected. That now, since the fall, human nature is initially created perfect and pure, and that afterwards Satan infuses and blends original sin as something essential into man's nature, as when poison is blended with water. Although in the case of Adam and Eve, man's nature was originally created pure, good, and holy, sin did not invade their nature in such a way that Satan created or made something essentially evil and blended this with their nature, as the Manichaeans imagined in their enthusiasm. The fact is that Satan misled Adam and Eve through the fall, and that by God's judgment and verdict man lost the concreated righteousness as a punishment. This deprivation and lack, this corruption and wounding which Satan brought about, this loss has so perverted and corrupted human nature, as was uh, indicated above, that all men, conceived and born in the natural way from a father and a mother, now inherit a nature with the same lack and corruption. For since the fall, human nature is not at first created pure and holy, and is corrupted only subsequently through original sin. But in the first moment of our conception, the seed from which man is formed is sinful and corrupted. Hence, original sin is not something which exists independently within or apart from man's corrupted nature, just as it is not itself the proper essence, body, or soul of man or man himself. Neither are original sin and the human nature that has been thereby corrupted to be distinguished from each other in such a way that man's nature is allegedly pure, holy, righteous, and incorrupt in the sight of God, and only the original sin which dwells in it is evil. 2. We also condemn the error which Augustine attributes to the Manichaeans in his Confessions, that it is not the corrupted man himself who sins because of his inborn original sin, but a strange and foreign something within man, so that God by his law does not accuse and condemn man's nature corrupted by sin, but only the original sin. As stated in a foregoing thesis, when we discussed the correct doctrine of original sin, 
The whole nature of every human being born in the natural way from a father and a mother is corrupted and perverted by original sin in body and in soul. In all its powers from beginning to end down to the ultimate part involving and affecting the goodness, truth, holiness, and righteousness imparted at creation to our nature in paradise. This does not mean that human nature has been totally destroyed or has been transformed into some other substance essentially different from our nature and accordingly is not coessential with us. Because of this corruption, the law accuses and condemns man's entire corrupted nature, unless the sin is forgiven for Christ's sake. The law, however, accuses and condemns our nature, not because we are human beings created by God, but because we are sinful and evil. Not because, and insofar as our nature and essence are the work, the product, and the creature of God, even after the fall, but because, and insofar as our nature has been poisoned and corrupted by sin. Although, in Luther's words, original sin, like a spiritual poison and leprosy, has so poisoned and corrupted man's whole nature that within the corrupted nature we are not able to point out and expose the nature by itself, and original sin by itself as two manifestly separate things, nevertheless our corrupted nature, or the essence of corrupted man, or body and soul, or man himself created by God, which with, within which original sin, by which the nature, essence, or total man is corrupted, dwells, are not identical with original sin, which dwells in man's nature or essence and corrupts it. Just as in a case of external leprosy, the body which is leprous and the leprosy on or in the body are not one and the same thing, so, if one wishes to speak strictly, one must maintain a distinction between a. our nature as it is created and preserved by God and in which sin dwells, and b. original sin itself which dwells in the nature. According to the Holy Scriptures, we must and can consider, discuss, and believe these two as distinct from each other. The chief articles of our Christian faith constrain and compel us to maintain such a distinction. In the first place, in the article of creation, Scripture testifies not only that God created human nature before the fall, but also that after the fall, human nature is God's handiwork, in God's creature and handiwork. Deuteronomy 32, verse 6, Isaiah 45, 11, 54, 9, 64, 8, Acts 17, 25, and 26, and Revelation 4, verse 11. Job says, Thy hands fashioned and made me together round about, and thou, thou dost destroy me? Remember that thou hast made me of clay, and wilt thou return me to dust again? Didst thou not pour me out like milk, and curdle me like cheese? Didst thou clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? Thou hast granted me life and steadfast love, and thy care has preserved my spirit. Job 10, verses 8 through 12. David says, I will praise thee, for I am wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works. Thou knowest me right well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was being made in secret, intricately wrought in the depths of the earth. Thy eyes behold my uniform substance. In thy book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16. And in Ecclesiastes we read, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. 
Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. These passages indicate clearly that even after the fall, God is man's creator who creates body and soul for him. Therefore, the corrupted man cannot be identified unqualifiedly with sin itself, for in that case, God would be the creator of sin. In the exposition of the first article of the Creed in the small catechism, we confess, I believe that God has created me and all that exists, that he has given me and still sustains my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason, and all my senses. Similarly, we confess in the large catechism, I hold and believe that I am a creature of God, that is, that he is given and constantly sustains my body and soul and life, my members, great and small, all the faculties of my mind, my reason and understanding, etc. It is, of course, true that this creature and handiwork of God has been miserably corrupted by sin. For the dough out of which God forms and makes man has been corrupted and perverted in Adam and is transmitted to us in this condition. At this point, all Christian hearts may well ponder God's inexpressible kindness in that he does not immediately cast this corrupted, perverted, and sinful dough into hellfire. But out of it he makes and fashions our present human nature, which is so miserably corrupted by sin in order that through his beloved Son he might cleanse it from sin, sanctify it, and save it. This article shows the difference irrefutably and clearly, because original sin does not come from God, nor is God the creator or author of sin. Neither is original sin the creature or handiwork of God. On the contrary, it is the devil's work. If there were no difference whatever between the nature and essence of our body and soul, which are corrupted by original sin, and original sin itself, by which our nature is corrupted. We should be compelled to conclude either that since God is the creator of this our nature, he has created and made original sin, which thus would also become his handiwork and creature, or that since the devil is the author of sin, Satan is the creator of our nature, our body, and soul, which would also necessarily have to be Satan's handiwork or creature if our corrupted nature were unqualifiedly identical with sin itself. Both conclusions are contrary to the first article of our Christian faith. For that reason, and in order to distinguish God's creature and handiwork in man from the devil's work, we declare that it is by God's creation that man has a body and soul. Likewise, that it is God's work that man is able to think, to speak, to act, and to do anything. For in him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17 verse 28. But the fact that our nature is corrupted, that our thoughts, words, and deeds are evil, is in its origin the handiwork of Satan, who through sin has in this fashion corrupted God's handiwork in Adam. This corruption has come upon us by inheritance. Secondly, in the article of our redemption, we have the mighty testimony of Scripture, that God's Son assumed our nature, though without sin, so that in every respect he was made like us, his brethren, sin alone accepted. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Hence all the ancient Orthodox teachers held that according to his assumed nature, his assumed human nature, Christ is of one and the same essence with us, his brethren, because the human nature which he assumed is in its essence and all its essential attributes, sin alone accepted, identical with ours. They also rejected the contrary doctrine as patent heresy. 
Now, if there were no difference between the nature or essence of corrupted man and original sin, it would have to follow that Christ either did not assume our nature in as much as he did not assume sin, or that Christ assumed sin in as much as he assumed our nature. Both statements are contrary to the scriptures. Since, however, God's Son assumed our nature, but not original sin, it is evident that even after the fall, human nature and original sin are not identical with, but must be distinguished from, each other. Thirdly, in the article of sanctification, we have the testimony of Scripture that God cleanses man from sin, purifies him, and sanctifies him, and that Christ has saved his people from their sins. Sin thus cannot be identified with man himself, since God receives man for Christ's sake into his grace, but remains the enemy of sin throughout eternity. Hence it is unchristian and abominable to say that original sin is baptized in the name of the Holy Trinity, is sanctified and saved, and other similar expressions with which we do not want to scandalize the uninstructed people, although they are found in the writings of the modern Manichaeans. Fourthly, Concerning the doctrine of the resurrection, Scripture testifies that precisely the substance of this our flesh, but without sin, shall arise, and that in eternal life we shall have and keep precisely this soul, although without sin. If there were no, <clears throat> if there were no difference whatever between our corrupted body and soul on the one hand and original sin on the other, <clears throat> then it would follow, contrary to this article of our Christian faith, either that our flesh would not rise on judgment day and that in eternal life, instead of this essence of our body and soul, we should have another substance or another soul since we are there shall be without sin, or else that sin would be raised and would be and remain in the elect in eternal life. From this, it is evident that we must reject this doctrine with all its implications and conclusions. As when it is said that original sin is the very nature of corrupted man, its substance, its essence, its body or soul, so that there is allegedly no distinction whatever between our corrupted nature or substance or being and original sin. The chief articles of our Christian faith show powerfully and mightily why we must maintain a distinction between the nature or substance of man which is corrupted by sin and the sin by and through which man is corrupted. Let this suffice as a simple exposition of the doctrine and the contrary doctrine, the thesis and antithesis, as far as the chief points in this controversy are concerned. We are not discussing it here at length, but are treating only the chief points in summary fashion. With specific reference to vocabulary and phraseology, however, the best and safest procedure is to use and keep the pattern of sound words, as the Holy Scriptures and the above-mentioned books use them in treating this article. In order to avoid all contentions about words, it is necessary to explain carefully and distinctly all equivocal terms, that is, words and formulas that have two or more accepted meanings in common use. Thus, in the statement, God creates man's nature. The word nature means man's essence, body, and soul. But in the statement, it is the serpent's nature to bite and poison, the term nature means, as it often does, a disposition or characteristic. It is in this latter sense that Luther writes that sin and sinning are man's disposition and nature. Strictly speaking, therefore, original sin is the deep corruption of our nature as it is described in the Schmalkald articles. 
Sometimes, however, the term is applied in a wider sense to include the concrete person or subject, that is, man himself with the body and soul in which sin in is and inheres. Because through sin man is corrupted, poison, and sinful, Thus Luther can say, your birth, your nature, your entire essence is sin, that is, sinful and unclean. Luther himself explains that he uses the terms nature sin, person sin, essential sin, to indicate not, that not only thoughts, words, and deeds are sin, but that the entire nature, person, and essence of man is wholly corrupted through original sin to its very foundation. Con Concerning the use of the Latin terms substantia and accidents, we maintain that the assemblies of the uninstructed ought rightly be spared these terms in sermons, since they are not in the common man's vocabulary. But when scholars use the terms among themselves, or in the company of persons to whom these words are not unfamiliar, as did Eusebius, Ambrose, and especially Augustine, as well as many other prominent doctors of the church, under the necessity of explaining this doctrine against heretics, they use them in the sense of a perfect dichotomy, that is, a division without a middle term, so that every existing thing must either be a substance, that is, a self-subsisting essence, or an accident, that is, an accidental thing that is not self-subsistent, but that subsists in another self-subsistent essence and can be distinguished from it. This dichotomy was also used by Cyril and Basil. It is one of the unquestioned and irrefutable axioms in theology that every substance or self-subsisting essence, in as far as it is a substance, is either God himself or a product and creature of God. Thus, in many of his writings against the Manichaeans, Augustine, in accord with all dependable teachers, deliberately and seriously condemned and rejected the statement, original sin is the nature or essence of man. On this basis, all scholars and intelligent people have always held that whatever does not subsist by itself is not a part of another self-subsisting essence, but is present in another thing mutably, is not a substance, that is, something self-subsistent, but an accident, that is, something accidental. Augustine, therefore, constantly speaks in this fashion. Original sin is not man's nature itself, but an accidental defect and damage in the nature. In the same way, prior to this controversy, the theologians in our schools and churches, following the rules of logic, used the same terminology freely and without incurring suspicion, and for that reason, without ever being corrected either by Dr. Luther or by any other dependable teacher of our pure evangelical churches. Since it is irrefutably true, attested, and demonstrated by the testimonies of the church's teachers, and never questioned by any really intelligent person, that every existing thing is either a substance or an accident, that is, either a self-subsisting essence or something accidental thereto, if someone were to ask if original sin is a substance, that is, a thing that subsists by itself and not in another thing, or if it is an accident, that is, a thing that does not subsist by itself, but is in another thing and cannot exist or subsist by itself, then necessity compels us to answer simply and roundly that original sin is not a substance, but an accident. For this reason, the churches of God will never attain abiding peace in this controversy, but on the contrary, the discord will only be increased and deepened if the clergy are in doubt whether or not original sin is a substance or an accident in the right and strict sense of the word. Really, to settle this offensive and highly detrimental controversy, 
for our churches and schools therefore requires that everyone be rightly instructed in these issues. It involves another question, however, when someone inquires further, what kind of accident is original sin? No philosopher, no papist, no sophist, indeed no human reason, be it ever so keen, can give the right answer. Holy Scripture alone can lead to a right understanding and give a correct definition of original sin. It testifies that original sin is an inexpressible impairment and such a corruption of human nature that nothing pure nor good has remained in itself and in all its internal and external powers, but that it is altogether corrupted, so that through original sin man is in God's sight spiritually lifeless, and with all his powers dead indeed to that which is good. Thus the term accident does not in any way minimize original sin, if the term is explained in harmony with the word of God, just as Dr. Luther in his Latin exposition of Genesis 3 likewise writes earnestly against a minimizing of original sin. The term serves only to set forth the distinction between God's handiwork, our nature in spite of its being corrupted, and the devil's handiwork, the sin which inheres in and most profoundly and inexpressibly corrupts God's handiwork. In this fashion, Luther used both the term accident and the term quality when treating this issue. But at the time, he explained with special seriousness and great zeal and impressed on everyone how abominable and dreadful this quality and accident is, which did not simply sully human nature, but corrupted it so deeply that nothing in it remained pure and uncorrupted. In his exposition of Psalm 90, verse 12, he wrote, Whether we call original sin a quality or a disease, ultimately the worst damage is that we shall not only endure God's eternal wrath and death, but that we do not even realize what we are suffering. And again, on Genesis 3, the venom of original sin has poisoned us from the soles of our feet to the crown of our head, inasmuch as this befell a hitherto perfect nature. So amen to that. So this is going to wrap it up for today. Next week, we're going to get into that all wonderful and controversial article on free will and why the Lutheran answer regarding free will is so confusing for people. But notice how the theologians here and how Mr. Chemnitz are arguing. They're talking, here's what the Bible says. And then we we have these antitheses, these doctrines we are rejecting, right? Well, what happens to the Bible and what happens to what the Bible proclaims if those doctrines are true? So while what they say is really, really repetitive, they keep repeating themselves in order to solidify the definitions and answers they're giving over and against the outcomes for these um, heterodox or heretical teachings. They're saying, you know, if mankind is, by his very essence, original sin, then we're saying Jesus is sin. We're saying God creates sin. Well, Hebrews says that Jesus had no sin. And the Bible says over and over and over again that God is not the author of sin. So we just can't say that. But then we can't say that mankind is still partially good or that mankind is uncorrupt because, hey, the Bible says that we are corrupt. So, okay, so the answer regarding original sin is that it's got to be something that from conception just is part of our nature, but something that is inhered in our nature. It's an alien thing. It's an alien, sinful, 
deprivation of what we ought to be. But it is not our nature in and of itself because God still creates us. He still forms us and fashions us. So that's, that's their argumentation style. They go, here's what the Bible says. These opposite opinions and theologies go against what the Bible says. It is still the rule and norm of faith. So they say, all right, let's go by what the Bible says. Get a little bit of help from interpreters to understand what the Bible says and compare that with what these false teachers are saying and reject them. When it comes to free will, we're going to have a lot of fun on that one. Trust me, guys. The Lord bless you and keep you. Until we meet again, amen.